0: We believe uh, that the word of God has power. That God, uh, well, He create, created the world with words. I mean, mountains and trees and dirt, grass—it's all God's word expressed at creation and continuing to be spoken. That it's sustained through the speech of God. That's what actually the speech of Christ is. What Hebrews says that God's, God, Jesus upholds the world with the power of His word. It's an incredible thought. It's an incredible thought. And God speaks. He's he's bringing about a kingdom, a new creation through through the word made flesh, but also through his written word. And so when we come and we we open it and we consider it, it's, it's powerful. And so what that means for me personally is that I have a pretty simple task. It's not like, you know, and I'm not even good. I'd be horrible at like creating kind of slick, topicky, topical type, you know, little things that we do for the church service. Like Jesus at the movies or, you know, Jesus at the gym or, you know, things like, like I'd be horrible. at Me explaining this is showing. I'd be horrible at that. Um, and thankfully, my task is kind of easier than that. We just we open this word and we consider it. And God's spirit, the power of the spirit is just unleashed as it's opened and considered. And so from our very beginning, all we've done, and it's not to say topic, we may do topical stuff at some point, but thus far, we have not. We, we started with Ephesians in January of 20, went all the way through the book of Ephesians, got us to August of 20, and then we jumped into Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, in the fall of 20. And then in Advent of 20, so like no, last of November and December, we began John's gospel. And we we were in John's gospel until the summer of 21. And then we jumped back into Genesis to consider the family of faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And we just finished that last week. And now we're back in John's gospel, right where we left off, back in June of 21. So here we are we do a little, just a little background work on John's gospel. Well, John is a gospel. There's four gospels in, in, in the Bible. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of these books highlights, focuses on the life ministry of Jesus, of Nazareth. And each of the books, is, each of the gospels is a little bit different. You could actually think of them as like four portraits they don't conflict with one another. They round out a picture of Jesus for us. And from the very beginning, uh, the church, early church fathers associated each of the Gospels with, with a creature, the creatures that we see in Ezekiel, um, you know, kind of the king of, of the wild, the lion, the king of domesticated animals, the ox, the king of the air, the eagle, and the king of creation, man. Those are the four creatures, the four And each of those was associated with the gospel. And fittingly, John's gospel was associated with the eagle. Because Jesus and John's gospel soars. Think about it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they, they begin with a voice crying in the wilderness. They begin with a baby in a manger. Where does John's gospel begin? In the beginning was the word. Right? All the way back to the beginning. Jesus Christ was in the beginning. And the word became flesh. And Jesus emphasizes his relationship with his heavenly father, that he is the manna from heaven. He is the bread that is the eagle that has landed. Right. He's, he's, he's from the heavenlies and he's come down. And we see more, maybe more than any other gospel, Jesus is just the, 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 the soaring nature of Christ, the person. And the way the book is divided, there's kind of two books, you might call them. There's the book of signs, where Jesus gives seven miracles, signs of who he is. And then there's the book of glory, and and that's chapters 13 through 21. So we're in chapter 11 right now. We're wrapping up the book of signs, and we're approaching the final and greatest sign that Jesus does in John's gospel, the raising of a man, Lazarus, from the dead. Shocking that that he did this, and he did and that's the seventh and final sign, and it moves us into the book of glory, chapter 13. So we'll be here for a while, but chapter 13 through, through the rest of the book, it's the book of glory where all energy moves towards the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that's where we are in this gospel. We're going to be exploring this miracle in particular in the, in the next few weeks. And this morning, as we consider these verses here, chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, I want us to consider three things, three points. The trouble, the timing, and the truth of this passage. So the trouble, the timing, and the truth. Now, the first question is, well, what's, what's the trouble? What's the problem here? Jesus has retreated from this area of hostility. You, won't, you probably don't remember it, but it was end of June 21. We, we looked at this passage. It's Hanukkah. It's December, and Jesus is in the temple, and it says that the, Jewish, the Jews surrounded him. They, they gathered around him is the language that the translation uses. That sounds fine enough. They're always gathering around Jesus. But actually, the language is they're gathering with hostile intent. It's like wolves circling their prey. It's like, um, it's like vultures circling. They smell blood, and they want Jesus. They, they want him dead. And that's all confirmed because at the end of that passage, John chapter 10, at the end of John chapter 10, the crowd, the the Jewish leaders, they pick up stones and they're ready to stone him. And so Jesus and his disciples escape and they retreat and they retreat to uh, to the other side of the Jordan. They go far away from Jerusalem. Okay, And so they're there. They're not it's not like a retreat from a busy week at the work, work. Right. It's a retreat from actually people trying to kill Jesus. And that's where we find them. And then something comes their way that disrupts their retreat. Look at verse uh, 1. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem, so very close to Jerusalem. And Jesus is on the other side of the Jordan, far, you know, east of, of, of this. And so Lazarus of Bethany um, is sick. It was Mary, John tells us, verse two, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So this family are friends of Jesus. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. We haven't seen them in John's gospel. They show up in the other gospels, but not we haven't seen them yet in this gospel. And they have a message. They have a message. Lazarus, their brother, is sick. Look at verse three. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill. And this, with that simple fact, that request, the sister's request, we get into into gospel territory. What they say. Frederick Bruner says this. With this request, the, the, the reader is taught to bring your needy to Jesus. Those in your family, those in your circle, those in your church who have need. The world comes to Jesus with their need. And here's the thing. We've seen it time and time again. Jesus receives those who come to him. He heals those. That's what he's been showing us in these miracles, in these signs that he's done. He's, he heals them. And actually, they're not even coming to him. He comes to them. Remember the lame beggar? These people are so broken down, they have no power or resources themselves to even get to Jesus. The lame beggar for 30, I think, 37 or 38 years was lame. He was he couldn't move. He was sitting inches from the pool that he believed would heal him, but he couldn't get in the pool for almost 40 years. He's waiting for his big shot for somebody to pick him up and dump him in these healing waters. He can't do anything. Jesus comes to him. Jesus finds him. A couple chapters ago, we saw Jesus heal a blind man. How effective is a blind person at finding a person? Difficult. But Jesus comes. He comes to him. And that's what Jesus has been doing. And here's what John is saying. If you're troubled, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. If you're sick, come to Jesus. If you're tormented, if you're bothered, if you're afraid, Come to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We tend to think of, it's very easy for us to think of Jesus as kind of like just another spiritual guru. You know, it's like if you Googled spiritual guru, the top five or six would be, you know, Muhammad, Buddha, the Dalai Lama, Jesus. Might throw like Socrates or Plato for some uh, maybe Oprah or Deepak Chopra, more contemporary spiritual gurus, and then and then of all those people, Jesus has the most five star ratings. So it's probably best to go with him. He's your top choice. He's the top result in the search of spiritual guru. But that's not what John is saying at all. He's saying John. John is saying Jesus is not just another religious character. Jesus is life. He's life. He, John calls Jesus the Word made flesh. And he's drawing, he's drawing upon both the Hebrew tradition, the Jewish tradition, the Old Testament. and He's also drawing upon the Greek tradition. And the Greeks believed that the Word, the Logos, was kind of the glue of the universe. It held it all together. It was the organizing. It was kind of the blueprint for all of reality. And John says, you're right, there is something that integrates and holds everything together, and it's a person. It's not an abstract principle. It's a person, and that person is Jesus, and he came, and he dwelt among us. That the heart of the universe is not abstract force and not meaningless chaos, but it is a personal triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and God the Son, the image of the invisible God, is very God of very God, as our creed says. He is God walking among us. He is life. He is truth. He enfleshed himself into the world. And he dwelt among us. And it's remarkable. The author of the story of which we are all a part wrote himself into the story and became a character within it. Remarkable. And we we use this illustration, and I want to return to it because we're kind of getting our bearings again in John's gospel. But imagine, imagine that you're on Mars on a trip to uh, colonize Mars, and you've spent some time there. Uh, there's, there's, there's a whole team of astronauts there, and they load up. They've been there for a long time, so they're ready to get back to earth, and they load up their provisions this group of astronauts, and you're there. They load up their provisions, their food, they fuel up. They get the spacecraft in good working condition, and they take off. And their journey's going really well. Like, they're they're really executing. They have uh, the right amount of fuel. They're rationing their food properly. The morale is high. They hit an asteroid field, and they're, like, dodging these asteroids with great success. Everything's going well. There's just one problem. They've miscalculated their journey, and they're not heading to Earth. They're going to Jupiter. They're going in the exact opposite direction of where they should be going. So the thing, in the end, will be a complete failure. John is saying this is what is true about Christ. You can live your life and just crush it. You can make money, have a great job, you can do all of these things. But to the extent that your life is moving away from Jesus... You're, moving, you're on a ship to Jupiter. The end is, is death. It's doom. It's, it's inevitable because you're not moving towards life. To the extent that you move to Jesus, you move towards life. And it's interesting to note, as far as I can see, correct me if I'm wrong. I would appreciate that, actually. But I, I can't see any examples where someone dies in the presence of Jesus Not Jesus crucified, but Jesus, living Jesus. Nobody dies in his presence because he's life. He's life. And so a very important question for us is, if Jesus is life, if your life depends on his life and death, how do you come to him? How do you come to Jesus? Do you come to him with great articulation, with a spring in your step? Do you come to him in power, in success? You actually come to him in weakness. And, and I want, let's look again at this request that they make. Verse three. What are, the, what are the sisters? What's the message they give Jesus? They relay to him. They say simply, Lord, he whom you love is ill. It's kind of a half-baked request. It's not very polished. It's actually not even a request at all, is it? Look at it. It's just, it's a fact. It's a fact that implies need. They're not even asking for anything. The one whom you love is ill. Fact. It's like, it's like, when, a, it's like when a child comes to a parent and they, they, haven't even, they, they haven't even taken the time to articulate a request. They're scared or they have some sort of need or they hurt and they just come to their parent. That's how the sisters are coming to Christ. The one whom you love is ill. The sisters just state, just state it flatly. It's, it's more instinctive than anything. And I think this is instructive for us. That we, we too ought to develop the instincts of the sisters here. Where we just bring our half-baked request, or maybe just a fact, to Jesus. To, 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 to sort it out. And I think that's the point. When when the sisters are coming to Jesus, they're not coming to a mere man again, like we said. They're coming to this force of love that will conquer the world. They by bringing this fact to Jesus, they they're just kind of throwing it into this hurricane of love. You know, there's a hurricane I believe kind of making its way or at least it could develop into that to to the states. How do you how do you approach a hurricane? You don't really even approach it, do you? It just sort of, it's, you get swept up into it. You, it, it. It takes you. And so it is with Christ. Now, unlike a hurricane, which breaks apart, rips apart, the hurricane of Christ's love puts back together. It heals. It brings together. It creates integrity. It creates, it, it brings harmony to things. The sister's gut instinct is we need Jesus. Let's not even formulate what to say. Let's just fact of our need, get it to him, and let Jesus sort it out. The one whom you love is sick. And that ought to be our prayer. Paul Miller in the Praying Life book that we say, isn't this his emphasis in that book? That what we bring to God is our need, is our poverty of spirit. That really what prayer is, it's our weakness leaning into his strength. That's prayer. Our weakness, leaning into his strength. And that's something that we all can do. And there's a really important point to be made here, uh, I think especially for us kind of in our own culture, and that is this. We say it often. We've said it many times. And now we're back in John's gospel, so I'm going to start saying it again because it's a theme in John's gospel. It's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. It's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. And Tim Keller gives a really helpful illustration that's kind of etched this in my my heart and mind. And it's the image of uh, men running from a bear in a frozen forest. And they're they're on the run, and they make it to a cliff, and the bear's chasing and pursuing them. At the bottom of the cliff is a frozen pond, and the men have a choice to make. Do we take our chances with the bear, or do we jump off the cliff onto the frozen pond? Now, will the frozen pond hold? That's the big question, isn't it? Well, the first man, he believes that, well, he's got like 90% faith in the ice that it will hold. And he jumps off the cliff onto the frozen pond, and it holds. The next man has like a 62% belief that the ice will hold. And so he jumps off the cliff, onto the, and it holds for him. The last man has like no belief, barely like 12% belief that the ice will hold. He's, he doesn't believe it. He sees the cracks kind of starting to create around the other men. He's like, there's no way. I didn't want to do this in the first place. Now I really don't want to with these bodies on it already. But the bear's breathing down his neck. He had just instinctually, he just jumps. And guess what? The ice holds for all three of them. They all had different qualities of faith. Some really believed, some barely believed, some were in the middle. But it, that didn't matter. It's the object of your faith that saves you. And what John is saying, bring your faith, weak or strong, bring it to Jesus. It's the object. Jesus is the one that matters, not the quality of your faith. And if you keep coming to Jesus over time, guess what? The quality of your faith will increase. You'll you, you grow in you'll grow in faith, but it begins small, like a like a little seed. So that's the trouble. That's the first point. Lazarus is sick, and the sisters instinctually look to the right place. They look to life. Now the second thing I want us to consider is the timing of all this. So the sisters, they float this fact Jesus' way in hope, and Jesus hears it, He fires up his heavenly sirens, and you know, woo, he's heading straight back to Bethany to, save, to rescue Lazarus, right? Look at verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and, Lazar, and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What do you make of that? The, the, the sisters have a brother that's on his deathbed, and Jesus says, "Hey, let's just let's hang out here for a little bit. Let's hang loose. You know, we just got here. It's it's kind of nice here. Let's just hang around." I mean, so the question is, like, does he not love Lazarus? Does he not love the sisters? What's going on? If I've got something that I don't really want to do, I hang around for a couple of days. Maybe see if the problem goes away. Is that what's happening? Is his conscience just sort of like, eventually is like, you got to deal with this. And Jesus is like, all right, fine, I guess we'll go heal Lazarus. And that's what motivates him. And that's not it at all. In fact, look at verse five again. John is trying to keep us on track here. He says specifically, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And the Greek is emphatic. It's, John is saying, now, now here's the thing, everyone. Jesus really loves this family. They are close to him. And yet, at the same time, he's waiting two days. So what does it mean? You know, in the previous passage, Jesus, um, actually, you can look at it if you have your Bibles open. Chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says, My Father, who has given my people to me, my disciples, those who I love, who has given them to me, it says, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's chapter 10, verse 29. That's actually not the best translation. What, what Jesus is saying is, my Father has given me my people. And they are my most prized possession. They are greater than all. To me, my church, my people, mine, my sheep, are my prized possession. And therefore, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Therefore, all of my might is devoted to keeping my most prized possession in my care. That's what Jesus is actually saying. And so that applies to Lazarus. That applies to and Mary and Martha. Martha. So it's he's not delaying because he doesn't love them. But you know, Mary and Martha, if they knew the response of Jesus, wouldn't they wonder? Jesus, what's going on? Do you not love us? Are you not good? Are you not powerful? Are you unable to do anything? Is that why you're delaying? It's either a shortcoming on his goodness, it's a shortcoming on his power. Why wait? Throws him off, confuses, it confounds. You know the, sis, the sister, the sisters think he's being too slow, right? But not everybody sees it that way. Look at this: the disciples have the opposite problem. Look at verse seven. Then after this, he said to his disciples, "Let us go to Judea again, back to Jerusalem, back to Bethany, back to the area where we were, where they all wanted to kill us." And the disciples said to him. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. You're going there again, like whoa, slow down, Jesus. This is a little quick. We just got out of there. We need to let the tension settle. We need to let the dust settle from all that was taking place there. It's too soon, too soon. So the, the, everybody's everybody on the ground has a diff, has a timeline, right? Disciples say we're too fast. Mary and Martha would say too slow. How can everyone not like the timing? Let's look at look at verse nine. Jesus answered them. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Answer the question, right? It's kind of it's kind of cryptic. What does that mean? Here's what I believe Jesus is saying. To walk in the light is to walk in the will of the Father. And Jesus has said back in chapter 6, verse 38, my will is tied lockstep to the will of the Father. Therefore, I only do what the Father wills. And when I walk in the will of the Father, I'm walking in the light because his word is a lamp. To unto our feet, as the Psalms say. And so Jesus is saying to the disciples, we will walk in the will of the Father. That may look like death. That may, look like, that, may look, that may make no sense whatsoever. But if it's the will of the Father, it's gold. And we're taking it. Because if it's not the will of the Father, if you walk outside the will of the Father, you're walking in darkness and you stumble. Even though it may seem safe to stay out on the other side of the Jordan, If it's not the will of the Father, you're in a a, a territory more dangerous than Jerusalem and their stones. That's what he's saying. For Jesus, it's not the timeline of the disciples or the timeline of Mary and Martha. It's the timeline of the Father that matters for Jesus. But you might, might say, isn't God painfully slow? It feels that way, doesn't it? We just finished the book of Genesis. It felt that way in Genesis. I mean, centuries go by. Abraham and the fathers were promised land and a nation. And they're dead in their graves. And at the end of the book, they're in the wrong land, Egypt. At least not the land of promise. And what do they have as far as land goes? A little burial cave in the land of Canaan. That's it. Nation of maybe 70 to 90. God is working slow. And his timeline is not ours. but, But it is perfect. And just to highlight the inscrutable will of God, that God's will is perfect. I want us to consider this final point, the truth, the truth that's nestled in this passage. There is a profound biblical truth buried, a little treasure, truth treasure, buried in this passage. And that's what I want us to consider now. It's not something that we would arrive at on our own. It's a uniquely biblical truth, but it's all, it's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. The caves and coffins that we looked at back in Genesis, the truth was there. Remember Jacob dead in a cave, Joseph dead in a coffin. Is this the great end of the family of faith? And the answer is no. It's only the beginning. It's only the beginning. The disciples, look at what the disciples um, again say. Verse 8. They said, Rabbi, the Jews were now seeking to stone you. And you are going there again. That's their their concern, right? The disciples' concern is is that Jesus will likely die. But let's see what Jesus says in verse 11 and following. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, and they thought he meant he was taking rest and sleep. So then Jesus just tells him plainly, Lazarus, let me spell it out for you. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So let's, let's go to him. Now, here's the thing, though. The disciples are right. The disciples are right. For Jesus to go back to Jerusalem is a death sentence for him. That's true. Because this, this is leading to all the events leading to his death. That's what's happening. And that's the point. That's the point of the passage. For Jesus to give life to Lazarus, it means his death. If Christ is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, it means Christ must die. This is the biblical truth. This is the truth that's all over the scriptures. This is the truth that we eat and drink every week. That in order for us to live, Christ must die. And that's what's happening here. Lazarus' life depends on Jesus' death. Life for Lazarus means death for Jesus. And that's the gospel. That's that's what this is said. This is the treasure, right? This This is the heart of the universe. That the glory of God is Jesus and his life offering on the cross. And that's what he says. Look at verse four. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the, he, and by the way, as he's doing these signs, he's he, he's starting now, he's preparing for the second half of the book, because now he's starting to talk about, it's been the, for the glory of God. This sign is for the glory of God, that God's glory may be seen with the blind man. And now here he says, the illness. this illness doesn't lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. See, we're, we're hitting this transition point between where Jesus is doing signs, and now he's going to be taking the road to the cross, his glory in John's gospel. And it's his glory because it gets us to the heart of the universe, that at the core of the universe, at the core of creation, is a God who gives himself to to his creation, that that, that at the heart of creation is gift. That's what creation is. And that's what Jesus was showing us as he's pouring his life out for his people, it's so fitting. This is the son of Judah. Remember? Remember Judah's crowning achievement in life? Remember what it was? Stepping in for Benjamin, giving his life? And guess what happens? Judah was willing to, to bear the cross, and he gets the crown. He was willing to lay his life down for his brother Benjamin. And Remember what Jacob says to Judah? Preeminence. the, the kingly line. You are the king. You are the kingly line. And out of you will come a cub that will be the greater Judah, Jesus. And here he is doing it. And here's the thing. We, we, we love this, but it's also scary because it's our glory too. Look, look at verse 16. So, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. What does he mean by that? It's not entirely clear. Is he talking about Lazarus? Is he talking about Jesus? Is, he, is it kind of a cynical, jaded comment? Like, all right, I guess we'll go and die. Or is he saying, let us go and we will die? What does it mean? I don't know exactly what it means, but I do know that Thomas is speaking more truth than he realizes in this moment. His words are more true than he understands because what does Jesus tell his disciples? Take up your cross and follow me. What did Dietrich Bonhoeffer say? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And what what happened to the disciples? What happened to Bonhoeffer? They all died for their faith. Bonhoeffer at the hands of the Nazis, the disciples at the hands of the Roman powers, and in some cases, Jewish powers. And what about us? What's what's the likelihood that we die for our faith? Pretty slim, I would think. I don't know anything can happen i suppose pretty slim but what is what what is the, the likelihood that we must die every day that that's what christ is calling us 110% this is what christ's call is for us that what we do every day is we take these little deaths little deaths dying to our desires dying to to our self focus and looking to the needs of others dying to our desires and the desires of the flesh Dying, 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 hour after hour, turning to Christ, saying, The Lord, Lord, the one whom you love is ill every day, turning in repentance to Christ and turning. And through all of those little deaths, you know what's on the other side of it? Resurrected life, new life in Christ. This is this is the gospel that death for Lazarus. Here's the point. Jesus could have healed Lazarus from his sickness, but he does it. He delays and Lazarus dies. So that Jesus can show us that in the Christian economy, we must pass through death to experience resurrected life. And that's the goal. I mean, aren't we kind of miserable anyway? If I gain another century in life, I don't, I mean, I guess, but I don't know. It's, I mean, life is good. I'm happy. I'm not, but, I mean, isn't there, don't, don't our hearts long for something more? Jesus promises resurrected life, but to get it, you pass through death. That's the point. Father, we are thankful that you have communicated this so clearly, and it's all over the place. We we can't escape it. It is the heart of the faith, it's the crux of the matter. Christ, Christ crucified. That love transforms us into the people that you are making us. And so we we pray that you would, and we pray that you would continue to work on us as we come to the table and as we continue to worship you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.